the only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome to the weekend edition of the Football Social Daily podcast. The international break may still be in full swing this weekend, but here on FSD, we're on duty to round up all of the latest news right the way across the last 48 hours. Gareth Southgate's England have kicked off 2022 in a slightly stuttery fashion as the three Lions picked up a 2-1 friendly win against Switzerland. Southgate rang the changes at Wembley last night and we'll be delving into the lessons he learnt, or maybe not, ahead of that all-important World Cup group stage draw next week. In part two, we'll be looking at the wider picture of World Cup qualification with the final places at Qatar almost, but not quite, ticked off. There's going to be 10 more teams joining the World Cup group stages in the next few days. And then to wrap it all up is the international transfer window roundup. Rashford to Arsenal. Yep, I know that sounds a bit odd, but that is doing the rounds. Erling Haaland to Manchester City. The latest picture on whether he will be coming to the Premier League. And Yuri Tielemans tells Leicester that he wants to leave and pursue his Champions League mission. So we're going to be looking into whether or not he'll be staying in England or heading off to the continent. So plenty to get through on tonight's show. My name's Fergal Brennan and uh, we've got ourselves a Manchester City double act this evening. It's all City Blue tonight from The Athletic. We have Sam Lee. Sam, how's things? Hello. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, Yes, no, I did speak to her this morning. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Happy international break <laughs> to my mum and happy Mother's Day to my mum. She, she gets the best of both worlds. Um, and alongside him, representing City again, but from gold.com, we've got ourselves Jonathan Smith. Jonathan, how are we doing? I'm very well. Happy Mother's Day to my mother as well. If you've done it, I, bet I, I can't miss out. I better say it. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, we've all done our duty now. So if anyone has actually <laughs> forgot, pause the podcast, ring your mum, and then you can start the podcast again. We'll give you a few minutes to get that sorted out. Right, uh, Gareth Southgate's mum will probably be relatively pleased, Jonathan, this weekend. Not over the moon if she watched the uh, the Switzerland game last night because it wasn't the most exciting, but job done, box ticked, a win, a winning start to the calendar year for Southgate and England. But the big focus ahead of the game and at full time was the changes that he made to the starting eleven, particularly at the back. Ben White, Connor Cody and Mark Gway all started in a back three. Mark Gway for his debut. Obviously, Connor Cody and Ben White are still relatively inexperienced. Kyle Walker getting a debut on right wing back and Connor Gallagher getting a first start for England. So lots of changes. A friendly is always difficult to assess, particularly when it comes to England, because it can be very easy to make too much of it or make too little of it. But these players have got an opportunity to prove themselves in these two friendly games, Ivory Coast in midweek, there's the Nations League this summer, and then obviously the big bad boy of the World Cup at the end of the year. Do you come away from this game thinking that Southgate has got a few more questions rolling around in his head, or do you think maybe he's found a solution or two? Yeah, it's always difficult, isn't it, being an international manager, because nobody cares until it comes around to the major tournaments. And he, I didn't know when that sentence them. was going to end because no one cares. <laughs> Next. Well, he's got to find these answers and these, you know, maybe Gareth Southgate's mum was watching the game properly. I was kind of half asleep. You know, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't the best. There wasn't a lot of rhythm to it. Um, but yeah, like you say, there are issues that he has to look at. I, I think one of them is at centre-half. Obviously, I think John Stones is way, way ahead as the first choice, but... 
in terms of backup and who plays alongside him, I think there's a lot of questions that, and that needs settling before the before the start of the World Cup. You know, Harry Maguire didn't play against Switzerland. You would have to think that he's probably the one to play alongside Stones. Um, but he's, you know, clearly been in rotten form for United, struggling. He hasn't, he's never let England down, but I think Southgate does have to look at his options and it's not too clear what his next choice is. Ben White's had a good season at Arsenal, so I think certainly he has to be part of the squad. Uh, and then, but what, you know, you usually take four centre backs. So who's your other one going to be? Tyrone Mings. I'm not awfully convinced by. Connor Cody. Uh, same again. I, I thought Mark E. He did really well in his debut. So yeah, he's had a good season for Crystal Palace. Perhaps he's he's more of a long term option. But yeah, it was a good start from him. When we're looking at what could potentially be an option for Southgate in this decision that he needs to make over Maguire, Sam is that he needs to balance kind of the reality of the situation. Ben White, as Jonathan said, has had a really good season for Arsenal, but Harry Maguire is settled in that England defence. And a big feature of Gareth Southgate's kind of operation with within England is that he does back certain players whether they're having a bad time at club level maybe they're not quite hitting the heights that they were we saw this with Raheem Sterling at Euro 2020 last summer that he stuck by Sterling and Sterling was arguably England's best player at the competition he was knocking in goals and and driving England through the knockout stages Harry Maguire I don't know if I go as far as to say has never let England down he hasn't made a glaring error that's given away a goal as he has done at Manchester United but Southgate needs to play this correctly because he needs to manage Maguire's confidence and kind of let Maguire think that, yes, you're still my guy, you're still a starting centre-back, but he can't ignore the form of others and he can't ignore the fact that in the last 12 months, Harry Maguire is a completely different beast than he was previously. Yeah, although did you see what Luke Shaw said yesterday? It was something along the lines of, when I come away with England, I feel kind of wanted and loved. And he's like, it's not that I don't feel that at Man United. I imagine he had to check himself quite quickly. Mm. He goes, but here at England, <laughs> I definitely do. And I feel, you know, and Shaw's in a similar position to, to Maguire, isn't he? You know, all of a sudden you'd start looking at, I know Chivalry's had injuries, but you start looking at how things were for the Euros last summer and players who could be moved in or out of that team. And you look at the Man United ones who were struggling. And you go, okay, Shaw could come out for Chilwell. And Maguire could come out for whoever. Obviously, you, you both mentioned a couple of names there. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'd like Maguire to start in the next game because, yeah, on, on Saturday night, they, they had a, a few new names coming through and this is exactly the time to do it. But as they get closer to the World Cup, which is obviously at the end of the year, um, you'd, you'd want to have a... Look, in an ideal situation, like John Stones, as John said now, is probably head and shoulders above the others. I think going into the Euros last year was probably kind of close with Maguire, mm. but it's funny how he surged ahead and Maguire's dropped off. So it's not ideal, but what, what Southgate's going to want to have to do, his mom's name's Barbara, by the way, I'll just Googled that, <laughs> um, is make sure that Maguire is you know still still the man to start. And I, I think, you know going on by what Shaw was saying in terms of the different mentality, and we've seen in the last two summer tournaments with England that the mentality and this kind of the, the, the group they've got mm. and the, the atmosphere in that camp is great. And it's... It's almost something that you don't get at any club side, let alone at Man United, which is a lot more fractious than it is at most of the top clubs at the moment. So I, I, I'd still stick with Maguire because I thought he was fantastic for the Euros last year. And, you know, Carl Walker was great as well. So if you think in the back three, at the moment, I'd go with Walker, Stones and Maguire for sure. Um, but if somebody was to, you know, if Maguire were to drop out, then, yeah, Ben White's definitely an interesting option because he's obviously, he can play the ball out like, like Maguire can. Um, not so much carry it. 
as much as Maguire does, but it's there. And I think Cody's kind of surged up a bit now, you know, purely by dint, I think, of just being kind of solid and dependable. He went to the Euros. Did he not play a minute? But he was mm. taken because he's he's good for that environment I was talking about. He's yeah. good. He's not going to start thinking, I'm not playing this game, get me out of here, which I think some England players did last summer. You know, behind the scenes, they mm. weren't too happy. But Cody's not got that personality. I think since then, he's, he's playing well. He's played more minutes for England. And I think he might he might have a shout. But I suppose with Mings, I'm with John. I, I don't, I don't, particularly think Mings is great although he did do well when he started for England in that first game um, he does you know he is left footed and he can bring the ball out so if you're thinking to replace Maguire on that left side of the back three then possible but for now after that long big answer I'm still saying let, let's let's give Maguire an opportunity in, in a kind of settled team which England are and with a lot of cover mm. he's not getting as exposed as he does at Man United because England played two holding midfielders Last summer at the end of Euro 2020 Jonathan there was this idea that England had done so well, they got to the final, obviously heartbreak and losing penalties against Italy, but it looked as if eight, maybe even nine, ten, possibly, if you were being overconfident, places were, were nailed down in that team. It was a pretty regular team through the group stages and into the knockouts. There was only a couple of changes here and there from Southgate, but... Fast forward to the current position that we're in. There's these questions over Maguire. There's been some questions over Jordan Pickford. Calvin Phillips has missed a huge amount of the season with injury at Leeds, and that's obviously put them in a position where they're now battling against relegation. Is this the case now that certain places that were nailed down are not as focused? Are we now looking at a picture where the World Cup is nine, ten months away, and instead of eight or nine places that are nailed down, it's maybe closer to half a dozen? Well, I think we're still in the experimental stage at the moment. I thought Pickford obviously had a very good game against Switzerland last night, made a couple of good saves. And again, he's a bit like Maguire. His club form is not the best, um, but I think you have to stick by him. I think since he obviously those two helped England to the Euro 2020 final, like you said, and nothing's really changed in terms of helping them qualify for the World Cup. They were always, they're always there. They're always part of the squad um, and they've always done the business. So I, I still think a lot of those places are nailed down. Obviously, like you say, Calvin Phillips has been struggling with injury. He's got to get himself back into the Leeds team. But you would think that the way that Southgate stuck with him throughout the tournament, that he obviously still sees that sort of um, midfield partnership of him and Declan Rice as, as a bit of a, a platform for the rest of his attack. I think it's perhaps further forward where the, the, the places are up for grabs. Of Someone like Rashford is... You know, has dropped off the radar completely. He's, he's, his club form is so bad; it's having an impact on his international form as well. Um, you know, Sanchez, uh, sorry, Sancho, Grealish, Sterling—they're all you know not not absolutely on top of it at the moment for the for City and United. Um, and so, um, Saka's obviously doing really well at Arsenal. So, I think further forward there are. Options. The one, the one place I think that he really needs to look at is centre forward. Obviously, Harry Kane scored against Switzerland. Uh, you know, a dubious penalty as it was. Um, he's all, he's all set to become the record England goalscorer at some point. But I think since the Euros, we're even further away from having a backup for him. You know, Calvert um, Dominic Calvert Lewin has hardly played for Everton this season, not scoring goals. I think Ollie Watkins came off the bench last night. He's, you know, not in outstanding form for Aston Villa particularly. Um, I would like to see Tammy Hay- Tammy Abraham get a chance at some point before the World Cup starts because he's obviously done, doing really, really well in Roma. 
Um, bit of a new lease of life for him, a goal scorer. And I think that's probably a more realistic alternative to Kane. I want to ask you about Kane before we take a break, Sam, because when we talk about maybe inconsistency in decisions that, that Gareth Southgate has to make, one decision that he's already made is Harry Kane's role and his position in this England team. He's moved himself up the rankings, nine goals uh, this season, obviously his first goal for England in this calendar year. He's now second, uh, or joint second rather, in the England rankings with Bobby Charlton, 49 goals, which is so impressive when you match it against the Caps. 49 goals in 68 games, 0.72 goals per game. Only Jimmy Greaves has got a better one um, post-war. He's, he's absolutely insane, his, his form for England. And as Jonathan said, it, it is only a matter of time before he breaks Rooney's record. So I wanted to ask you about perceptions of him within England fans because looking through this list here, we've got Rooney, who's top at the moment, Gary Lineker, obviously Charlton, Michael Owen, Alan Shearer, Frank Lampard, all from the Premier League era. None of these seem to have the same affinity with England fans as Harry Kane. Wayne Rooney is a top goal scorer for England and was an incredible player for England for many, many years. But he doesn't seem to have the same relationship or connection with the England fans as Kane does. And even, I don't think Lineker did, I don't think Owen did. What is it with Harry Kane that makes him this striker that essentially England fans want, whereas maybe with Rooney they didn't? I think what that's down to is it's he plays for Spurs, and given look, I mean I'm, this may be completely wrong, uh, and I'll go back to this Spurs point in a minute. It's not it's not an insult for them by any chance, and you know given, um, you know given a lot of England fans will support football league teams or you know Villa or Leicester or Newcastle or whatever, it, it might not be an issue. But I think when it's a big player at a at a, at a top club where the rivalries are, are so intense, you know when it. If it's Rooney, I suppose Owen possibly when it was Liverpool, but the the players from that generation actually, the early two thousands, they've spoken about how the dressing room was kind of fractured a bit for England, not like it is now. Um, and you know there was cliques where you know the United players sat together, the Chelsea players sat together, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that you know if you if you spend a year hating Rooney because he plays for Man United and then you got to get behind him for England, and also it was it was often. He was great in 2004. He was at Everton then. So again, you wouldn't have that issue so much. But when he was at United, it was quite often a, a poor England team. Obviously in 2010, it was a poor England team. And, you know, he said, he said that famous, great to have your own fans booing. Yeah, that, that support that is or whatever it was. You know, if your answer is kind of that, it's playing for Man United, a club that the majority of the country dislikes. And also maybe those incidents where you have a bit of a backlash. Whereas Kane, obviously there's the Arsenal fans will dislike him. but you And Chelsea to an extent. But you're not going to have loads of the country hating him. It's a bit like Grealish. Like everyone wanted Grealish to play last summer, and now me and John go to City games. And Grealish is getting booed at every ground because he plays for City, because he plays for a big club that the people dislike. And so Kane hasn't had that, and he's not had off the pitch controversies as well. And I, I think, I think that's basically it. I think that's probably why. And I don't know. It's just an unbelievable goal scorer. In terms of Lineker, I'm not sure. You know, I, I wasn't really around, and to be honest, I've not. Although I've got a couple of books on it and I've enjoyed them, I, 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 I don't remember. I couldn't tell you either way if Lineker was was a favourite or not. I would have assumed he was, but maybe that's the kind of reputation he's cultivated for himself afterwards. But yeah, as for Kane, I think it's because he it's largely because he's based for Spurs and he's he's not controversial, is he? He keeps his head down and he just scores loads and loads of goals. I think he's brilliant. 
Do you think that's what it is, Jonathan? Is his perception? Wayne Rooney was perceived in a certain way because he played for Manchester United, and maybe because of the way that he operated when he played for England. Whereas Harry Kane just seems to tick a lot of very safe boxes in terms of the way he carries himself on and off the pitch. Whereas other players, I mean, Michael Owen's pretty dull, but he doesn't also have the same personality as Harry Kane. Harry Kane is almost if you made an England striker in a laboratory in terms of the look the way they play, the way that he... And he really, really rose hard for England. Do you think that also maybe plays a part of it, that he really seems to be pushing for England, that he wants to be the main man for England, whereas maybe Owen, Rooney, going a little further back into other players, maybe they didn't quite feel as strongly as, as Harry Kane does? Yeah, I think Harry's very comfortable being the figurehead of this England team. He's... I think, like Sam was saying, there's is, is, is a bit of a different spirit about the squad as well. Um, and, and partly they're, they're being more successful, and that that helps. You know, one thing with Rooney was that he really, he generally struggled at major, major tournaments, apart from the first one where, where he sort of burst onto the scene. I think he really struggled after that, and then obviously he got sent off against uh, Portugal, so, you know, you've let your country down, all that kind of rubbish. Um and, and you know, scoring goals against San Marino and qualifiers and Andorra and stuff like that is never really going to get you too far. Um, whereas you know, Kane scored big goals in in big tournaments. Um, you know, you think about Germany in last summer and things like that. So, yeah, that all helps, and he's quite happy to do all the interviews and uh, and there's something about this squad as well. They were the far more comfortable getting involved with certain issues such as the Black Lives Matter, talking about Ukraine, whereas, you know, it past past sort of tournaments and press conferences, it, all that kind of stuff was it did it was very difficult for footballers to, to get involved and they just it was all very bland and I think I think Harry Kane's really become an ambassador for for the England football squad. Yeah, I, I agree. I just think he just he fits the mould. I think he's just the poster boy that England have been waiting for for a long time. So, as we mentioned, he is right on the cusp of taking that record. My tip is I'd be absolutely shocked if he doesn't go into the World Cup as England's record goal scorer. 49 goals in 68 games. He's now four behind Rooney with those four Nations League games to come this summer and the Ivory Coast friendly in midweek. Right, we're going to grab ourselves a quick break. We're still focusing on the international break after the break, but we're looking at the big World Cup picture. The draw for the group stages is next week and the picture will be almost complete, but there are a huge amount of games, thank you Wikipedia, still to come this week as we get the final, final picture for Qatar. We'll be back in just a sec. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to the weekend edition of the Football Social Daily. It is the international window and we are focusing on Qatar 2022. The World Cup group stage draw is all set for next week and the picture is almost complete on the 32 teams that will be taking part. As we know, there's going to be three spots that won't be decided until this summer. There are two intercontinental playoffs and due to the postponement of Scotland and Ukraine, there'll be one more European spot still up for grabs. The picture 
picture stands at 19 teams that have already reached the tournament and that means that by the end of next week 10 more nations will be on the road to Qatar so I want to talk about the qualification picture Jonathan I'm going to go to you first on this Africa is the big focus because there are five playoff second legs to come next week that will ultimately determine who is representing Africa at the World Cup and it's an interesting situation because it's it's pinning some massive players against each other and no bigger than Mohamed Salah against Sadio Mane. We saw this in the AFCON final earlier this year where Mane was successful, the penalty shootout win, and he went back to Liverpool as African champion. They're facing off again just a couple of months later for a place at the World Cup. And looking at some of the other games, we've got Cameroon against Algeria, Ghana against Nigeria, sorry, Cameroon against Algeria, Ghana against Nigeria, uh, Dr. Congo against Morocco, Mali against Tunisia. We're in a position whereby there's some massive players playing for these nations and only 50% of them are going through. There has been a change by FIFA in terms of African qualification for the World Cup. Last time round, it was based on if you were top of your group, you got an automatic place. Whereas this time round, it is playoffs. And we are going to be in a position where it's only one of Salah or Mane at the World Cup, despite the fact that right now, they are two of the biggest and best footballers on the planet. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame that it's come down to what is essentially a look of the draw in terms of you know how well how well you get on in terms of being two games away from qualifying for the World Cup. And like you say, there's going to be certainly one massive player who won't be there uh, from either Egypt or Senegal. Um, yeah, just looking through the fixtures, I mean, they're all very, very finely balanced. It's quite interesting that it seems to be on the continent of Africa, certainly the North African teams now are just starting to move ahead a little bit. You can see, like obviously, Algeria are 1-0 ahead after winning in Cameroon. You look at their squad, obviously some brilliant players. Riyad Mahrez stands out, obviously, because of what he's done at Manchester City and in the Premier League. Morocco are favourites to get past Congo. They, they drew their first game away. And then Tunisia won away at Mali. So... You know, you'd have to say certainly it looks like three North African teams are going to go through there. Then it comes down to Egypt or Senegal. Um, yes, yeah. I, which way is it going to go? I mean, obviously Senegal maybe have a, a slight advantage having won the Af- African nations. Went down to penalties, so it's a massive game. And it, yeah, it, it is a bit of a shame that only one of them is is going to make it to Qatar. But that, that's World Cup qualifiers, I guess, isn't it? You know, there's going to be some big players from Europe, who aren't going to be there. Obviously, Italy have missed out. So, um, yeah, it would be a shame, certainly, if you'd have to say maybe Mo Salah is one of the best players in the world. So if he wasn't there, I think that would be a real miss for the World Cup. Is this a fair reflection of, of where we are in world football, Sam? Because looking at the slots, the the the, co- the coefficient points that eventually decide which confederation sends how many teams to a World Cup, that hasn't changed uh, CAF, which is the federation that looks after African football, did have five teams at Russia in 2018 and they will have five teams at Qatar this year. But this change in structure that it's a winner-takes-all, two-legged playoff between these huge nations with Premier League, Champions League-level players in it, is this a fair change or tweak to the system by FIFA when we're talking about some... Jonathan is right, there's going to be massive players from South America and from Europe that also miss out. But is this the right time to do it when African football is arguably at the strongest point that it's ever been? Um, I don't know. It's an interesting one. But I think 
if we're talking about World Cup qualifications and fairness and stuff, yeah, yeah, like you both said, there it's going to happen everywhere. You, you look at the Italian team and go, "There's eleven great players who are going to miss out at least." But they, you know, they they've missed out for for valid reasons. I know with this one, you know, with it being a playoff, it, it can seem a bit more unfair. And yeah, may, maybe this time around, it is. But if you look at the next World Cup and onwards, you know, there's forty eight teams, and next time, so like you said, there's there's five teams qualified for the last one and for this one. Um, from Africa, next time it's nine. You know, Asia get eight places up from four point five, and obviously that that point five is a playoff with with South America. Um, everyone's getting more. Um, so even if it's a little unfair this time in terms of the look the look of the draw, um, and there may still be the look of the draw next time. And you, even if there's nine teams going, it may be Senegal v Egypt next time or the equivalent. Um, but I, I think that's just yeah, look of the draw. That's how it is, and. In future, hmm. I don't think anybody likes the expanded nature of it, do they? You, you can certainly say it, it, it's fairer and it gives more teams opportunities. And you can't really deny that, but in terms of the layout, it's a convoluted. And what does it say for the quality? And you know, are there you know were there just too many European places? The thing is, you diplomatically, I don't think you could ever get this across the line where you say, okay, we'll have fewer teams from Europe. And there's a lot, you know, you look at it a lot, of, a lot of the time. I'm not going to name any particular countries, but you just think today. Do we need to have all these teams there? And especially now that England are actually semi-finalists and finalists, the last two are. I don't have to include England in that, but you would you would do for a long time. And you think previously, okay, we, you could take some UEFA places and and distribute them out to everybody else. But obviously, they haven't done that. They've grown it. Um, and I don't know. After after a few years of forty eight team World Cups, we'll we'll have a better idea. But I suppose that we'll be pining for the days of thirty two teams and you know players like Mane or or Salah missing out. Because at least there was some kind of entry level, it seems. Like in when it's forty-eight, you could end up with a lot of good players there and not many missing out, but also a lot going there that it's not going to make for a good tournament. Looking at the seeding picture ahead of the group stage draw, Jonathan, we're, we're pretty certain how it's going to be in terms of who is seeded. Qatar are seeded as hosts, and then it's the top seven sides in the FIFA rankings. Portugal's situation where they take on North Macedonia in midweek will we'll decide the last seeded, seeded spot. But as it stands, it's only going to be European and South American sides that are seeded. And this creates a, an odd scenario because you're going to have either Salah's Egypt or Mane's Senegal going in as a second, potentially even a third seed. And then the situation with the Intercontinentals and the delay over Scotland against Ukraine and who out of them will then take on Wales means that they get thrown in pot four, even if they are higher up the FIFA rankings. I understand that there's, it's impossible to please everybody or make sure that fairness is completely across the board. But we could have a situation where there's some really heavy groups based on this lack of consistency across the board. And looking at look at it for England and the group that they could potentially get, there's a situation now where England could get Germany as a second seed and they could face a real kind of local derby against either Scotland or Wales. These are all very, very feasible because of the way the group stage is structured. That'd be great. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's good to always have a mix of countries from across the world so I, I, I don't think you can get more than two European teams in, in one group and then you you know you might potentially get a South American team as well so yeah I mean there's always been groups of death it, it makes it interesting I mean obviously everyone's going to want to get who's in the open draw are going to get want to draw Qatar because they've got absolutely no heritage of success mm. well they've even qualified for the World Cup before but 
Yeah, I mean, you look at um, the sort of the qualifiers from uh, North North America. You know, obviously Mexico are by far the strongest team that will come from that se- section. USA look like they're going to qualify this time, um, but you know, the difference between drawing one team from from the same part of the world is is, is massive, really, because you know, the, 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 if you look back at the last World Cup, England played Panama and they were absolutely t- terrible. Was it? I think it was the five 0 down at half time against England. You know, just just a, a really poor side. Um, you know, in, and in terms of sort of African countries, that you know they've never never won the competition, obviously. So it's going to be very difficult for them to to earn a top seeding at the moment until one of them breaks through and actually wins it. So yeah, I think it all all sort of makes for quite an interesting draw. You saw. If, you know, if England were to get Germany, it would be one to look forward to, definitely. And quickly, before we grab a break, Sam, I'm going to throw it across to you. It is either going to be Salah or Mane at the World Cup at the end of the year. Mane was victorious in picking up Senegal's first ever AFCON title um, back in February. Who is going to do it? Are we going to have Salah in Qatar or Mane in Qatar? Um, yeah, well, in the, fi- the final was a, was a bit of a shock, and mainly for me because Egypt was very defensive and it's that European mindset isn't it really of or kind of certain European mindset of just get everybody behind the ball and, and give the ball to your star player um, I think they've got the advantage already and yeah with, with that in mind I reckon Egypt although obviously they lost in the in the final I think Egypt will get there this time Jonathan who are you going for Mane or Salah I'm going to go with Sam definitely yeah, yeah I reckon Mm, I don't know. No, oh. I'm going for Senegal. I'm going. For, I'm yeah. going for Mane in Senegal to do it. I think they've got a better, wider team, and I think if Egypt were to do it, it would be all on on Salah's shoulders if they were to get through. And I think I think Senegal have got enough about them, so I think it's going to be double heartbreak for for Salah in 2022. Only on an international page with Liverpool, he's probably going to end up <laughs> with a stack of trophies at the uh, at the end of the season. Right, we are going to grab another quick break. After the break, we're putting international football to one side for now, as we are focusing on the transfer window. It's not open yet but that is not stopping teams from getting themselves in order ahead of what is expected to be a big, big summer of spending. We're going to be talking about the latest rumours doing the rounds right the way across the Premier League. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Sunday's edition of the Football Social Daily. As always, regular listeners to the podcast will know you know the score by now. If you hit subscribe, you can get access to a brand new episode every single day. Between now and the end of the campaign, we will be doing a daily show covering everything you need to know about the Premier League. So don't forget to hit subscribe and you can get access to that as soon as it is good to go. Right. Transfers. Sam, I'm going to throw the first one across to you. Arsenal, according to the Daily Mirror, are preparing an escape route for Marcus Rashford from Manchester United this summer. Now, on the back of the recent few weeks, there is talk that Rashford is unhappy, maybe not unhappy at Manchester United, but he's frustrated by his lack of game time. His form has dipped, his confidence has dipped. And the Marcus Rashford that we all love on and off the pitch has gone away. His his star has dipped, his form has dipped, his goals have dipped. 
and everybody wants, even even non-Manchester United fans, want to see Marcus Rashford back as the old Marcus Rashford. And that's either going to happen if he stays at Manchester United and their new manager reignites him or he moves on and his career is kick-started elsewhere. What do you think is the best route to go down? A new manager, Eric Ten Hag or Maurizio Pochettino, could come in and light a fire under Rashford and get him back on track. Or do you think it's too far gone? No, I think United would be mad to get rid of him. Like, like I was saying before with Shaw and Maguire, the same the same goes for Rashford. Um, the, the thing is, with, with Rangnick being at United in a minute, I kind of feel like the, the, job he's, the best job he's doing, he's kind of shaking things up to the extent that he might get rid of some players that they need to get rid of. Um, like you know, Ronaldo. If he f-ed Ronaldo off enough, he might he might spare United a second year. I say that. I know he scored a hat trick against Spurs the other week, and he's got loads of goals. But I, I think I don't think it'd be good for United for him to be there next year. And then you know, Pogba's going to leave. It hasn't worked out for Pogba. Um, but if he started clearing out Rashford as well, I could easily see him shining somewhere else. So I think from from a United point of view the best thing would be to keep him and get a new manager in. And it's not just going to be a new manager. They, they need a whole change of environment around the team. And you, you can't just get that from a manager, but it, it would go a long way to help him. Uh, in terms of this particular story, I think Arsenal are always seen as a a good option. I think Spurs have been in the past, not so much now, obviously, because Spurs' style has dimmed a bit. Um, but, you know, when Pochettino was there and, you know, they were, they were second and third for a few years. Mm-hmm. I, I remember there's been a couple of times when you, you'd, from a Man City point of view, you look at Sterling before he really hits it off. And you think, oh, at the end of the season, if he doesn't do it, you know, maybe maybe Spurs. And now, similar thing with Sterling, not sure what his contract is. I think, to be fair, he'd want to go to Spain. And I think he, he could play for the best teams in Spain. But always in the past, it was, you know, yeah, you could see Spain. Uh, sorry, you could see Spurs, you could see Arsenal. And I think that's where Arsenal come in with Rashford now because they're on the up. You know, it's it's a move to London. It's a change of environment. It's a team that yeah appears to be on on the verge of doing well. With I know I know he's not necessarily young compared to like Saka and, and Smith Rowe, but he's not old either. Um, it, it would make sense in terms of that fit. But so I see where the story comes from. But yeah, when, if he was having to decide what he wants to do, and I think if United are having to decide, you know. If they're thinking in the boardroom, do we sell this guy or what? I, I, I think he'd be better off at United and getting a new environment that way. The environment at United needs to change. And then suddenly I don't think we'd see half of these, these players struggling. But I see where the Arsenal thing comes from. And, you know, if he did want to move, it would certainly be a good one. Although you'd always like to think players at mm, less so United, but more, more so City and Liverpool, if they are going to leave, the Premier, if they are going to leave their teams, you'd think they'd, they'd want to be going to to Europe. Jonathan, would you agree this situation with Rashford? Every time I read a potential Rashford exit story, I, I almost can't believe it because I just associate him so strongly with Manchester United. He, he is on that list of players that seeing him in a different shirt would just feel so strange. And you do not get the sense from him that he wants to leave Manchester United or leave Manchester. He's Mancunian. He's very, very proud of his roots and his connection to the city. A change of scenery, a change of the current scenery might be the best served option here because it, it does look mad. I agree with Sam. It looks absolutely crazy that Manchester United would give up on Marcus Rashford for what he represents as an ambassador of the club and what a talented player he is. Yeah, one of the concerns perhaps that Rashford, I would have about Rashford and perhaps Rashford would have 
is that he doesn't seem to have improved enough over the last few years. He obviously came onto the scene, was fantastic. So, you know, great skill, natural goal scorer, dangerous player. And I don't think he looks any different now to how he did sort of five years ago. And that would be a bit of a concern. I don't, I'm not sure everything that's happened off the pitch, all the changing managers, changing coaches and everything like that, I don't think that's helped him. I don't feel like he's improved enough. You know, it, it's obviously easy to sort of compare across the road with what Guardiola's done with certain players, but he has improved Sterling and Foden and players like that to such an extent. You know, they're so technically gifted. Just been, It's just been built on what they had. They've just been helped, been nurtured, and I'm not sure... Rashford has quite had that at United. Obviously, you know, Solskjaer's... I think he played at the times, he played well under Solskjaer, but their game was a little bit based around counter-attacking, which was brilliant for him because he was fast and he could, you know, take up, take chances a little bit. Um, but this season, obviously, when they were talking about at the start of the season, United were, were seen as a potential challenges for the Premier League. And it was a different game. It was more of a possession-based game and United have really struggled and Rashford in particular. And I just wonder if he looks around that dressing room at players like Paul Pogba, you know, this week, according to that uh, interview in France, he said he sort of wasted his last five years. And, you know, Rashford's got to be careful that he doesn't he doesn't waste his years at United and maybe he might look somewhere else and think, Do you know what, I don't even know who the manager is going to be next season. I don't know where I fit into this. Maybe if I join a settled club um, with a good coach, uh, like like Arsenal, like Mikel Arteta, you can see what he's doing at the at the Emirates. You know, Saka's improving, Smith Rowe, Martinelli. You know, there's an exciting young sort of uh, group of players there, and he, it it might be tempting for him to be want, want to be part of that. Uh, I'm going to move on, Sam, to reports in Spain from Diario Ass. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question because every single person on Twitter is going to be asking you about this for the next six months. So I'm going to get in nice and early. And it's about Erling Haaland and Manchester City. This report claims that it's a pretty much a straight shootout between Real Madrid and Manchester City. But as it stands, Haaland has not accepted the first contract offer coming in from Manchester City. Is this City's focus this summer? We know, obviously, last summer there was attention on Harry Kane and whether they'd be able to bring him to the club. That didn't work out. There's some lingering rumours that that could get reignited this summer. But Erling Haaland has been linked with Manchester City for two, three seasons. Is this where the focus for City is this summer? Yeah, I mean, you could ask me or John, and we're telling you the same thing. Yeah, it's he's, he's not so much the number one target for striker because, as far as I know, well, City generally, you know, last summer... Kane was the number one target for striker and Grealish was obviously the number one target for, for other positions. I think they thought of him as a midfielder. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they tried to do both. But at this point, it's like Haaland is the number one target for the striker, but also he's the number one target full stop and everything else is kind of on hold while they wait to, to find out. So, I mean, it, it's funny that you got that from Diario Ass. It could have been from anywhere, you know, that it's between yeah. City and, and Real Madrid. That's been the case for a couple of months um obviously it's been it's been reported in england that the harlan's already chosen city um i think it's difficult because those reports have been from you know big guys i know and i, I know how good they are you know as, as journalists me and john know a lot of the background that goes on to transfer stories that never sees the light of day and a lot of the reporting and you know what what our colleagues do you know for, for better and for worse and with some of these reports we, we know how good they are 
but I I don't either I either don't know because I've not been able to to get good enough sources on it. But I I don't think he has agreed yet. I think it's it is still up in the air. Um, I think City are definitely in a good position. I think they're in a better position than they were at the start of the year. Um, but I just and you know if it were, if they were to get the yes in the next you know seven to fourteen days, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but I'm I'm not sure that yes is there yet. And you know City of City have managed not to sign players who have said yes to them in the past. So I, I'm certainly not getting carried away just yet. But I think they are in a, in a good position. And, and yes, he's, he's, he's their main one this time around. Jonathan, I'm not going to put you under the microscope for the last transfer rumour. I'm going to give you a bit more of a flexible one to go with. And it's Leicester City's Yuri Tielemans. Uh, according to two reports, one from the Daily Mirror and one from the Daily Mail, he's looking at leaving Leicester either this summer or when his contract expires in 2023 because he wants to play... Champions League football. Now, we know Leicester have looked to tie him to an extension. He's ummed and ahed and he hasn't signed anything and he's keeping his options open. Leicester have struggled for consistency this season and are probably not going to finish in the European spot. So, I want to ask about Yuri Tillemans and, and his level effectively because if the top four finishes as it is, it's going to be Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Arsenal or potentially Manchester United, potentially Tottenham. From a Premier League perspective, you look at those sides does Yuri Tillemans improve them if Arsenal were to move for him, Tottenham, Manchester United? Does he go in and ramp them up a level? Does he go in and perform for them in the Champions League? Not just in the Premier League, but if Manchester United have got designs on doing well in the Champions League, Arsenal obviously want to get back there. Is Yuri Tillemans someone that can help those teams make an impact in the big games in the Champions League? Yeah, we're starting to see this a lot more often now, players running down their contracts and having these great options now when they've got almost 12 months left on the contract. Obviously, this summer we've got some big movers, potentially in Pogba and Mbappe. And yeah, so Tielemann's obviously taking a similar route running down his contract. And I think I do think it makes sense for him because you look at Leicester's season, it's obviously disappointing. He's a very talented player and I think he is good enough to play for Champions League. You know, it's very much a squad game these days. Um, so you're not. I'm not necessarily saying he goes into... Uh, Arsenal's first eleven straight away, but he's he's certainly good enough to challenge for uh, for a starting place. And and similarly, United United would be quite an interesting move for him, I think, because he's he's a sort of player that United don't really have. Um, you know, he he could play as a sort of number eight, number ten, just link the play. He's a little bit more composed on the ball, pick out passes. I I think he yeah, I think a, a Champions League type team it would yeah I think he is good enough for that um but then having said that he's not had a great season himself I watched him against City earlier in the season when City won 6-3 he gave away two penalties um gave away the ball for another goal he wasn't great himself maybe you know it's sort of symptomatic of Leicester's season and if he goes into a better squad with better players around him he will rise to the occasion I would have thought yeah, you do think he's got another gear to him, but it just it just seems that because Leicester can't really get it together this season, that maybe maybe the future is uh, is elsewhere for Yuri Tielemans. But there's a long way to go, and as Jonathan says, contracts are probably the new power broker in any transfer dealings. Right, international break is almost over, but there's still a few more stages to go in the coming days. Here on the Football Social Daily, we're going to be covering it all: World Cup qualification, England friendlies, and then that big return to the day job of the Premier League next weekend as always sam jonathan on a sunday night thanks so much for your time yeah thanks very much Pleasure. Thanks. 
Great stuff indeed, guys. As always, click subscribe up the top there and you can get access to a brand new show. The day job does swing back into action next week as we build up to the Premier League return. Thanks so much for listening and we'll speak to you again very, very soon. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.